0: Well, if you were to get to know me better, one of the things that you would find out about me that's uh, a bit odd is that I have quite a few phobias. I have quite a few things that would be characterized as actual phobias. On a somewhat serious level, I'm afraid of heights, needles, and tight places. I don't know if I share that with any of you. I'm not the only one. I take some comfort in knowing that I share my fear of heights with up to 5% of the population. So acrophobia is experienced by many people. So if we were to go together to Shanghai, to the the brand new kind of uh, skyline, and were to go up the World Financial Center, 101 stories up, they've built an observation platform that has a glass floor. Now, you wouldn't catch me dead up there, but but if I were to go up to that platform with you, uh, not only could I not go to that glass platform, I would be against the wall. Um, I I could not look at you standing on that glass platform. Uh, That's how weird I am. I would probably, with my eyes closed, just plead with you to come back to safety rather than looking 500 meters straight down to the ground. Fear of needles, often just called needle phobia, I have in common with more people. About 10% of the population has needle phobia. Uh, this summer I was going through chemotherapy for a recurrent uh, cancer that I have, uh, and my nurses were great. I think one of the things that's, that's been great uh, about this year, us acknowledging frontline workers and, and, and medical workers more, is that nurses are often uh, heroes in many ways. Uh, Most of my nurses were great, but there were a few nurses uh, that didn't believe me when I told them that they had two choices. Uh, Either they could lay me flat before they approached me with a needle, or they would have to physically catch me because I would be hitting the floor. Uh, If my wife was there, she would assure them that I was not joking and that I'd done that to her more times than she could count fear of tight places, claustrophobia, something that also about 10% of the population struggles with. Uh, for some, uh, elevators can trigger it or, or, or rooms that don't have windows. For me, it's mainly MRI machines. Have you ever been in one of these machines? Uh, it's like a death tube, basically. I mean, they, they lay you down and then they put you into this, this tight tube that uh, makes you feel constricted. Well. Uh, I was going in last year for an MRI, and and I told the technician about my problem, my my, my panic that will result, and and he kind of looked at me and thought for a moment. Well, he goes into the next room, and he brings back a a strapping young male nurse, uh, and and he, he says, this man will hold your hand while you're in the machine. Now, I... I'm a man with some pride, so I I look back and forth and I say, I I think I'll I'll be okay, fellas, I'll be okay. Well, they they put me into this MRI machine and I hold it together for four or five seconds before my hand goes out and grabs this man's hand. And we held hands for the next 25 minutes as I'm going through this machine. And I can tell you that on subsequent visits to this hospital, this man and I share some awkward glances with each other. Now, I've spent some time trying to deal with my phobias, with my fears. Prayer helps. Reminding myself of the truth helps. I've done some reading, so you can get on WebMD, and, and they will give you some breathing techniques and some visualization strategies there. Uh, and, and they will uh, list some of the top phobias that people deal with to kind of encourage you that you're not alone. And, and my phobias are all there. Uh, along with things like fear of public speaking and fear of flying and fear of spiders and those sorts of things. But, but there's one of the top phobias that strikes me as very different than the others. It's on all the lists. And it's fear of death and dying. Fear of death and dying. And, and as I read those lists, I'm reminded of that old Sesame Street song, One of These Things is Not Like the Other. My phobias are irrational. It's hard for me to admit that, but I know they are. Neither the nurse with the needle or the MRI technician or the designer of that beautiful observation platform at the World Financial Center in Shanghai are out to get me. They don't have it out for me. They're not coming for me. I don't need to fear them ultimately. That's what makes my fears irrational. But the fear of death and dying seems different, doesn't it? I don't mean to say that it's not real as a phobia or that somebody couldn't be overly obsessed and paralyzed by the fear of death to the point that it would affect their ability to live. I don't minimize phobias because I have so many of them. What I mean is that there's something very real and very right about a fear of death. If anything, I would say that as a society, we don't spend enough time thinking about death. I mean, death, now is is often far away from us it's in hospitals it's in nursing homes it's in hospice centers it's out of sight people used to die by and large at home surrounded by family and friends it was something that would be dealt with communally but though we try to hide it as a society facing death should profoundly impact the way that you and I live shouldn't it At the very least, it should prioritize for us the question of what comes after death more than anything else. I mean, if author J.K. Rowling is right, as she has Albus Dumbledore say, to the well-organized mind, death is just the next great adventure, well, then maybe we just need to organize our thinking better. Or if Woody Allen is right, we don't need to be scared of death. We just don't want to be there when it happens. But if the Bible is right, then we can't be so flippant, can we? Death is on the scene from the first pages of Genesis when the Lord said, On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it's there all the way to the very last pages of the book of Revelation. Where on the one hand it speaks of the second death in the lake of fire or of the new heavens and new earth where death is no more. Sin, which is the cause of death, is the great problem of the Bible's storyline. And the grace of God that can replace it with eternal life is the great solution that it offers. Well, I want to look at a text this morning that addresses the fear of death head on. It's an excellent text for us to be studying around Christmas because what it does is connect the incarnation of Jesus with being set free from the fear of death. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We'll be looking at Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 17. As you turn or scroll there, I'll give a brief introduction to the book of Hebrews. It's a book about endurance in the Christian life. It was written to Christians that had come out of Judaism But now in the midst of persecution, we're considering turning back to it. The author, we don't know who he is for sure, he tries to give these Christians endurance by showing them how superior Jesus is to all the types and shadows of the Old Testament. So Jesus is superior to the angels and to Moses and to the high priest and to the the temple and tabernacle sacrificial systems. He's superior to the whole Old Covenant, which could not finally and fully do away with sin. Could not fully cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Could not fully give us the endurance we need to run the race of this life with perseverance. Chapter 2, where we're jumping in, is an extended meditation on the fact that Jesus, in order to save us, had to become like us. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Jesus in order to save us, had to become like us. It's my prayer that this meditation will set you free from whatever you're afraid of this morning. So let's read the text. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, Jesus, in order to save us, had to become like us. And we'll take those in reverse order. So if you're taking notes, you can write down these two points. Number one, Jesus became like us. Jesus became like us. And then number two, in order to save us. In order to save us. All right, let's dive in. Number one, Jesus became like us. Uh, In this passage, we're thinking about the incarnation, which is a fancy word for Christmas. Uh, You could go to the first chapters of the Gospels of Matthew or Luke to read the Christmas story. But in the rest of the New Testament, you find the writers in, in places like this reflecting on what's happening when this baby is conceived in the womb of this young woman named Mary, who has never been with a man. Notice that twice here in our passage, verses, verse 14 and verse 17, we get a description of what's happening in the Incarnation. So first there in verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Children here refers to the people that God has saved. The author has been talking about Jesus as the author of salvation, who intended through his life and death to bring many children Into God's family to adopt them now just to be clear all humans have been created by him but unless we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus we are outside God's family not inside these children God intends to adopt to save they have flesh and blood they have physical bodies they are mortal they can die Well, we're told that Jesus partook of the same things. And it's important that we notice that Jesus exists before he takes on flesh and blood, right? Before he's an embryo in Mary's womb, he has eternal existence as God. The writer began the whole book of Hebrews wanting there to be no doubt about that very thing. Uh, Turn a a page back in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 3. It says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, in verse 3 here, when it refers to God, it's referring to God the Father. We are brought here into the mystery of the Trinity in which God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit are all one God, but exist eternally in three persons. I say mystery because the three-in-oneness of God is not fully comprehensible by us. But there's a a helpful picture here, isn't there? When it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The, The metaphor seems to be the sun and the sun's rays which are of one essence and yet inseparable. You could go all the way back in church history to the 300s. So 1,700 years ago, the church faced an enormous challenge by those that were saying that the Trinity is not the right way to think about God biblically. Well, a man named Athanasius uses this verse, among others, to show that they were wrong not to believe in a triune God. Listen to what Athanasius says. The sun's rays belong to it, and yet the sun's substance is not divided or lessened. The sun's substance is whole, and its rays are perfect and whole. These rays do not lessen the substance of the light, but are a true offspring from it. Likewise, we understand that the sun, S-O-N, Jesus, is begotten not from outside the Father, but from the Father himself. The father remains whole while the stamp of his substance, that's the phrase there, the exact imprint of his being, is eternal and preserves the father's likeness and unchanging nature. So Jesus, from eternity past, is God. But back to our verse in chapter 2, it says that he took on flesh and blood. He becomes man. He adds a human nature to his divine nature. He uniquely becomes the God-man. Now look down in verse 17 at the other phrase about the incarnation. The writer comes back to the same idea from a different angle. He writes there, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. We'll come back to the he had to, but we notice great care is being taken here to make sure that we understand Jesus became a real human. A human in every respect. This is because the author knows our minds are going to rebel against the idea of God becoming human. How could that be? God is omnipresent. He's everywhere present at the same time, but but as humans we're we're located in one place at a time. God is omniscient. Human beings start off knowing nothing except how to eat and cry and mess their diapers. And, And the most Wise and learned human being of all time has but a tiny bit of knowledge. Most significantly, the immortal cannot become mortal. The immortal by definition cannot die. But we're told here that none of these things hold true when it comes to Jesus. Somehow his divine and his human nature exist uniquely together in him in the person of jesus now you know in church history there are so many heresies right here Uh, so many false beliefs about essential matters that's what a heresy is and they all come about because people are trying to apply human reason to this mystery some said that jesus just seemed human he just acted human but he wasn't really human Others said that he took on a human body, but not a human mind. They kind of try to divide Jesus up into different parts. Others went back and rebelled against the idea of the Trinity altogether and said either that Jesus is created by God, not the eternal. He is not the eternal God himself. That's what Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. Or they went back and said the father The Son and the Spirit are just God wearing different hats at different times. Before we planted our our first church in Shanghai, we were attending an English-speaking church where one of the elders was a oneness Pentecostal. And that's exactly what he believed, that it was just God wearing different hats at different times, appearing in different ways. We actually had to leave that church because they didn't recognize that this man's error on an essential matter was a heresy. Well, the early church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, challenges those who say Jesus didn't really have a human mind this way. For that which Jesus has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of his nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. Now, I I don't think that you guys need to keep straight all the different heresies here. As long as you just pay attention to the text. He's told us that Jesus is the eternal God. He takes on flesh and blood, which makes him at the same time really human. And he's like us in every respect. Now, the author of Hebrews, a couple chapters later, is going to make one caveat to that. In Hebrews 4.15, he says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, because he's human. But he was tempted in every way, just as we are, again, because he's human, yet without sin. So Jesus is different from you and I, in that he never sinned. That's essential for him to be our substitute. But other than his sinlessness... Jesus, in his human nature, is made just like us. So let's make sure that we grab on to the humanity of Jesus with both hands. He was born in a messy sort of way, just like you and I. As Andrew Peterson would write it, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets, Of David's town Jesus grew up in a normal sort of way are you a child here this morning being a child's not easy adults are constantly misunderstanding you you often don't understand yourself often kids are unkind to you well Jesus understands you in all of that he he knows what it's like to be a child are you a teenager here this morning Jesus knows about all the awkwardness that comes with going from a child to an adult. Sometimes people treat you like a kid when you're not a kid, right? Sometimes adults are putting expectations on you that are, that are too much. Well, Jesus knows all about that. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. Are you an adult managing working a, a job to provide? Well, Jesus worked as best we can tell into his early 30s. He knows about the blood, sweat, and tears of work. He understands human pain. Whatever the first century equivalent of hitting your thumb with a hammer was, he understands about that. The highs and lows of human relationships, he lived that. Deep friendships, deep betrayals, he was misunderstood. He was rejected. He knows all about that. Do you feel alone this morning? Jesus knows about that too. Jesus became one of us. Sometimes I think that in a good eagerness as Christians to try to wrap our minds around the theology of this, theologians call it the hypostatic union, the two natures of Christ, we could be in very real danger of missing the plain fact that Jesus can sympathize with what's going on in our lives right now. As I mentioned, this wonderful book of Hebrews is written to people in danger of drifting away from their faith under the pressure of life and suffering. They start to look for comfort and help in other places. Well, the author's strategy here is to present to them a Savior who came near to them. As Tyrone reminded us as the service began this morning, Jesus' humanity is a coming near, a walking in your shoes that should draw you in and remind you of God's love for you. He's not some far-off boss throwing orders at employees he's never met and cares little for. Maybe you ought to stop and think about that some today. Jesus understands the different struggles that are going on in your life right now. So that's the first thing that our text presses us to believe. Jesus became a man. He became a human. He is God come near to us. But let's think secondly about the fact that he did that in order to save us. So point two, in order to save us. And we need to answer the question here, why? Why did Jesus step out of heavenly glory and take to himself this mortal, limiting, inglorious human nature? Our text gives us one purpose with three results. The one purpose is given there in verse 14 in a little phrase, that through death. He might do some things. Stated most simply, Jesus became a man in order to die. Without death, we couldn't have these benefits, the results of his death, which are here listed as three. Let's consider them each in turn. First, he destroyed our greatest enemy. He destroyed our greatest enemy. Look again there at verse 14. It says that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The devil here is described as having the power of death. Someone might point out that ultimately only God has the power of life and death. Satan is a fallen angel of considerable power, but his main ability lies in lies and deception. The Bible calls him the father of lies and the deceiver of the world. He has the power of death in that God has said that the soul that sins shall die. And from the beginning, Satan has been deceiving people that God hasn't said what he has said. And that we don't need to obey God anyway. And that good things will come from our disobedience, like happiness and fulfillment. So he has the power of death in that he keeps deceiving people to walk in the paths of death. Jesus' death destroys the devil because at the cross, Jesus shines through as the way, the truth, and the life. The sinner looks and and realizes that his or her sin is indeed that bad, so bad that it required the death of the Son of God to pay for it. At the same time, he or she realizes that God's mercy is indeed that great to extend forgiveness to us so that the path to eternal life is open wide. If only we'll believe him and trust him. When that message is proclaimed and believed, the power of our greatest enemy is destroyed. There's great application here for us. Remember that Satan is very real and that he's a deceiver. So don't be surprised if he's attacking you with lies but then realize that Satan has no power over you as long as you're listening to the truth. He's described as a roaring lion looking for those to, that he could devour. But he's a lion on a leash or, or a lion in a cage. So don't get in the cage with him. Learn to recognize the voice of the devil in your life. When you fail, when you commit some sin. Do you hear hear a voice that tells you that you're beyond help? Do you hear a voice that says that God is disappointed with you? Well, that's the devil. The gospel says that you're never beyond help. And if you are united to Jesus Christ by faith, then God can't be disappointed with you. When he looks at you, he sees his sinless son that he is eternally pleased with. And so he is pleased with you. On the other side, do you hear a voice saying that pursuing holiness and growing in your faith is too hard? It's too exhausting. It's not worth it. That's also the devil. If he can't crush your spirit, he would love to stunt your growth. Do you hear a voice saying that your life isn't turning out the way it was supposed to? That you're not significant? That you're all alone? That's the devil. He's a liar. Don't listen to him. Do you hear a voice saying that you couldn't be used in other people's lives to encourage, strengthen, disciple them? That you shouldn't try to speak the good news to others because of how much of a failure you are yourself? All of those things are the voice of the devil, beloved. Don't listen to him. His power has been smashed by the death of Christ, and his lies are defeated by the truth of God's word. So Jesus became a man to defeat our greatest enemy. But secondly, we can see in our text that he delivered us from our greatest fear. He delivered us from our greatest fear. Look there at verse 15. It says, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice that he calls the fear of death that human beings live under a lifelong slavery. I think we know what he means, right? Death is not something we like to think about. We would happily go through our day not thinking about it at all. But it is nonetheless an ever-present fear, isn't it? Things can bring that to the surface very quickly. I'm not just thinking about the near-miss accident on the highway or your doctor saying that he'd like to talk to you about your recent test results. I'm just thinking about the fact that an incredible amount of our human effort and activity is spent trying to insulate us from death, trying to build a hedge of protection around ourselves by maybe just by educating ourselves and our children and trying to earn enough money to have food and shelter and health care. When the writer here talks about slavery or the fear of death, he isn't talking about the, the natural and good fear that keeps people back from the edge of a cliff. I was thinking about the fact that toddlers are terrifying to their parents. We, we haven't had a toddler in many years, but we do now. Uh, Toddlers are terrifying because they don't have the needed fear of death, right? They're not afraid of drop-offs and highways and sticking things in electrical outlets. That's not what he's talking about here. No, he means the kind of fear that keeps you from doing the things that you know you ought to be doing. The kind of risks you have to be able to take if you're going to be a witness for Jesus. Or when doing the ethical thing at work might be a career-limiting move. Or when you say, I'm going to go ahead and gather on the Lord's Day with God's people when I might get the coronavirus. When you're controlled by the fear of death, it's a miserable experience. But Jesus' death delivers us from the fear of death. John Owen's famous book is entitled, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. It's a wonderful title. It celebrates the fact that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, puts death to death. Or the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. What he means is that you can't really kill a Christian. You can only translate them from this life to the life to come. Cancer, coronavirus, car accidents, cardiac arrest, cirrhosis of the liver. Seeing how far I could go with C's there. We're united to Jesus. He sets us free from all of them. He destroyed death. And he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So our key application here is not to live in the fear of death. You and I need to cultivate an active anticipation of crossing the river to the other side. And finding your footing there in the heavenly kingdom. You know, that's the image in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. You may remember the scene where, where Christian is, is trying to cross the river of death and he feels like the water is going over his head. Uh, his friend Hopeful is there by his side, keep encouraging him. Keep going, Christian, keep going. And then there's that, that beautiful point when Christian can feel his footing on the other side and he begins to, to come up out of the water. He can see the heavenly city there. Oh, it's just a beautiful picture. Beloved, that's what it will be like for us on the other side of death. Not sadness, but joy and victory. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. We can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain because Jesus has delivered us from our greatest fear. But there's a third thing here. He meets our greatest need. Look at verse 17 again. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. As we follow the logic here, Jesus had to become like us to give us the help that we needed. Why is that? Well, the high priest in Israel was the one who would enter the tabernacle or the the temple into the holy place with the blood of a sacrificed animal and sprinkle it there before God. In doing this, the high priest was representing the people and he therefore had to be one of them in order for the sacrifice that he's offering to atone for them. Well, we're told here that Jesus had to be fully human, like us, in order for him to be this kind of a representative High priest for us. So we've got to have this human high priest to represent us. But then it's interesting with Jesus that he is both the high priest making the offering and the offering itself. That's why it describes him here as merciful, I think. He's offering himself, his own blood for our sins. Not for himself because he has no sins that are in need of atonement. And he's faithful, we're told. Because he carries out all that the Father has sent him to do. So as we think about him praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Not my will, but yours be done. He fully carries out all the priestly work that he was given to do. So he's a merciful and a faithful high priest. But most significantly, what he did in his death was to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word means atoning sacrifice, a sacrifice that atones for sin. It's a coin with two sides. On the one side, it means our sins are washed away. We no longer have any sins to pay for. On the other side, it means that God's wrath against us as sinners is satisfied. He's not angry with us anymore. The just God, who cannot let the guilty go unpunished, can look at the sinner who has trusted in Christ And say, because she is united to my son Jesus, who paid for her sin, I am satisfied with her. In Paul's language, God can be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, friends, do you believe that this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never understood and believed this before. I hope you can see that this is the best news that you could ever hear. Though you're a sinful person who deserves death and separation from God forever in hell. God has been merciful and gracious to make a way of salvation for you. Though our culture may have forgotten much of the meaning of Christmas, this is what it means. God became a man in order to die so that if you'll turn from your sins which is called repentance. if you'll trust in Jesus this morning, then you will receive the gift of eternal life and you will never truly die. Why not do that this morning? Grab one of the pastors. I'd love to talk to you after the service. Make sure that you don't leave this morning without talking to somebody about how you could trust in Christ. So let's take stock of what we have here in our text. Jesus became a man In order to save us, Jesus came to die, to destroy our greatest enemy, the devil, deliver us from our greatest fear, the fear of death, and to meet our greatest need, propitiation for our sins. Well, what does that mean for you and I as we head into this Christmas season? Well, for one, it should give us a a great sense of thankfulness and joy as we think about God's love for us. He didn't do this because we were lovable or because we could do anything for him. He did it simply because in eternity past, he set his love on people who would one day place their faith in Jesus. People like us. I think these truths also should give us a sense of calling. A sense of calling to move towards others. I mean, if Jesus stepped out of the comfort of heaven to come down and clothe himself with mortal flesh, condescension of incredible magnitude, then you and I have every reason to step towards our neighbor, towards our coworker. And maybe especially if there's someone not like us in some way. We we could use the incarnation as as motivation and example and power to, to incarnate in the life of someone else, maybe just with friendship. Maybe just moving towards someone this Christmas who hasn't heard about Christ. We could build friendships with those around us with the same sort of humility and compassion that Jesus had. That may begin this week just with some intentional conversations with people right around you. I've heard it said that if you ever met a truly humble person, you wouldn't walk away thinking that they were humble, just that they were totally interested in you. I think that would be a great way for us to apply our text at Christmas. Finally, our text calls us to connect Christmas with Easter in a way that drives out fear. I don't know what phobias you have. I hope you don't have as many as I do. But I know we all have fears. When it comes to death, you and I should hear from God's word the message, fear Not. When it comes to viruses, we should hear the message, fear not. When it comes to the future, we should hear the message, fear not. He came to set free all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. How was it the angel put it to those shepherds that night in Bethlehem? Fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the city of David is born to you a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. Let's pray together.